You're listening to Comedy Central. July 26, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Tonight is the New York congressional candidate who is taking the Democratic Party by storm. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is here, everybody! So excited! But first, let's catch up on today's headlines. Swoosh. Facebook is back in the news. And I hope Mark Zuckerberg has stocked up on his sad face buttons. All eyes are on Facebook this morning after the company took a major financial hit Wednesday to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. Shares of the world's largest social network plunging as much as 24% late Wednesday after Facebook missed Wall Street's earnings expectations. CEO Mark Zuckerberg himself taking a nearly $17 billion hit. We're investing so much in security that it will significantly impact our profitability. We're starting to see that this quarter. We're investing so much in profitability. <laughs> We're investing so much. Like, how is that a human being's voice? I'm still sucking out Zuckerberg's. I, like, I'll bet when Mark Zuckerberg tries to use Siri, the two of them just get into a feedback loop. He's <laughs> like, I didn't quite get that, Mark. Here are some web results for that. I didn't quite get that, Mark. <laughs> His voice is so weird. I bet he's never had a normal phone conversation because people think he's not a real human, you know? He's like, hi, it's me, Mark, representative. No, it's me, Mark, representative. No, it's me, Mark. So anyway, Facebook. Facebook shares lost $100 billion today, right? Which is the largest one-day loss in stock market history. Yeah, and Zuckerberg personally lost $17 billion on his net worth. Yeah, and you know what, I'd feel bad for him, but he's still worth like $60 billion. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like feeling bad for a guy who lost his third penis. He still has way more penises than most people will ever have. <laughs> oh, moving on to some exciting news that's literally out of this world. Scientists have finally found liquid water on Mars, which means human beings might be able to live there. Yeah! <laughs> No, no, wait, wait, not you guys, not you guys. No, we're all stuck on this planet. It's only the billionaires who can afford that trip. Yeah, in 10 years, Zuckerberg is gonna be up on Mars like, ha-ha, ha-ha, ha-ha. I'm the most human person on this planet, ha-ha. Who's laughing now? Oh, uh, and thanks to Walmart, you don't have to go to Mars to see the future. Walmart is testing a pilot program with self-driving car company Waymo. It shuttles customers to its stores to pick up grocery orders placed online. Yes. Walmart is moving into the future by introducing self-driving cars that take you to the store. And I'm assuming the next step will be hiring robots to greet you at the door. Come with me if you want to save. <laughs> you know what gets me about this story is that Walmart makes it sound like a huge innovation, but really they're just trying to trick us into doing what we already used to do, which is go to the store. <laughs> we don't want to go to the stores anymore. We want stuff sent to us. They're like, but we have self-driving cars. Yeah, I've already got a self-driving car. It's called Uber, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I sit in the back and it drives for me. I don't touch the steering wheel at all. Like, you know, this would be like if Amazon rolled out Amazon Prime, but in reverse. It was like, oh, it's great. You just get in a box and Amazon ships you to its storage facilities and you pick up your own stuff. Yeah. It's called Greg Prime. All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our main story. 
Look, it's no secret that we at The Daily Show haven't been the biggest fans of President Trump. I know, shocking. For instance, we've even uh, regularly reminded our audience that Donald Trump is sexually attracted to his daughter. (laughs) Don't forget, Donald Trump wants to bang his daughter. (laughs) But we've stopped doing that. Because you see, this morning I realized that I have become a Trump Trump hater. Yeah, which had blinded me to how much good Trump actually is for this country. And I know I haven't lost my mind, I've opened it. I've seen that Donald Trump is fixing America's problems. Every day this week, he's done something great. Yeah, it started on Tuesday when he saved the farming industry. The Trump administration is giving $12 billion in emergency aid to farmers hurt by tariffs. A new temporary $12 billion program is set to launch around Labor Day, meant to offset the estimated $11 billion in losses farmers face. The goal of this one-time aid package? To tide farmers over until the U.S. can negotiate better trade deals with other countries. The farmers will be the biggest beneficiary. Watch. We're opening up markets. You watch what's going to happen. Just be a little patient. Yes! Donald Trump, saving the farmers, baby! Oh, and side note, Mr. President, you don't need to tell farmers to be patient. These people wait six months for a carrot to grow. I think they got the patience on lock. (laughs) They know how to be patient. You're like, you guys need to be patient. No, no, they got that, don't worry. But still, great job, Mr. President. You saved farmers from the effects of the trade war. Which, by the way, I don't even know who started the trade war. Like, I mean, I guess we'll never know who that was. The point is, Trump is fixing problems. And that was just on Taco Tuesday. On Wiener Wednesday, (laughs) Trump fixed an even bigger problem. Together in the Rose Garden, President Trump and European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker announced a wide-ranging agreement meant to stave off further trade hostilities between the U.S. and Europe. If we team up, we can make our planet a better, more secure, and more prosperous place. This man is a visionary. Can you imagine a world where one day America and Europe can work together? Can you Im- That is insane. <laughs> that would be like peanut butter and jelly in the same sandwich. <laughs> Europe and America? Whoever thought we'd see something like this in our lifetimes? I mean, you realize just two and a half weeks ago, a major world leader declared Europe one of America's biggest enemies. But who that leader is will be a mystery forever. So, I mean, we don't know how we got here. The point is Trump it, my friends. Even you haters out there have to be impressed by that turnaround. In fact, I haven't seen something that miraculous since I got an Oreo with twice as much filling as a regular Oreo. <laughs> yeah, and you know, some people said, Trevor, that's just a double-stuffed Oreo, but they're just jealous, okay? I know what Jesus did for me. <laughs> and you know what? If you still don't believe in this great leader's ability to mend what was once broken, then maybe this will open your eyes. Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen says the government will meet today's deadline to reunite all eligible children and parents who were separated at the border. That's right. Move over, Thai soccer team that takes weird-ass field trips. Some other kids (laughs) are being rescued now. Yeah. And it's all thanks to the commander-in-chief. This is so amazing, man. All the migrant children who were torn away from their families at the border will now be reunited. Yes. Uh, except for the hundreds of kids who won't be reunited. Yeah, but I don't think we should focus on the numbers when we're talking about children. I mean, I believe the children are the future. You teach them well and something, 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 something. (laughs) And I know, I know there are naysayers out there who'll be like, 
oh, but who took these kids away from their parents in the first place? Who cares? <laughs> who cares? Look, that only matters if you're trying to prevent that from happening again. The point is that Trump fixed it. He's reunited more families than Maury Povich. <laughs> so in one week, President Trump saved the farmers, made peace with Europe, and freed the children. And we could spend forever trying to figure out which 45th president hurt the farmers, antagonized Europe, and kidnapped the children to begin with. But again, that's not the point. (laughs) The point is, my friends, President Trump can fix any problem just as long as he created it. We'll be right back. You know how the past few years, people have been saying the world is on fire? Well, it turns out it actually is. Global temperatures reached extreme highs this past week, something scientists have been warning of as part of the effects of climate change. This map from the University of Maine shows maximum temperatures around the globe yesterday. Look at that map, people. (laughs) Look at that. We've made the world so hot that it looks like the Earth got its STD results back and it's got all of them. Why don't you use condoms, Earth? Why? (laughs) Because they choke turtles? Oh, I get it now. I get it. And we've been hearing about global warming for a while, right? But when you see the numbers, you'll realize it's no joke. In Denver, Colorado, the city tied its record all-time high of 105 degrees on June 28th. A new world record was set in the Middle East last week. Along the coast of Oman, the temperature never dropped below 108.7 degrees over a 24-hour period. And in Glasgow, Scotland, the temperature reached a record-breaking 89.4 degrees on June 28th. That's more than 20 degrees hotter than its usual mild summer temperature. Wow, there really is nowhere to escape this heat. Even Scotland is feeling it. And I know, I know that 90 degrees doesn't sound that bad, but don't forget, we're talking about Scottish people here, all right? (laughs) Yeah, they're not built for that much sun. When you have skin that pale, even sunscreen cannot help you. You put it on and the sunscreen is like, yeah, I can't do everything, man. You gotta do something. I need your skin to do some of the work. I can't be SPF everything. This is insane. And it turns out that climate change doesn't just make weather worse, it's making humans worse. Climate change poses a huge threat to national security. This according to a new Pentagon report. In our defense strategy, we refer to climate change as a threat multiplier because it has the potential to exacerbate many of the challenges we are dealing with today, from infectious disease to terrorism. Yeah, that's right. More climate change means more terrorism. That's insane. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if ISIS starts working this into their recruitment videos. If you join us, you will die a glorious death against the Western infidels. Also, we have air conditioning. ISIS, terrorism's never been so cool. Makes you want to join ISIS, right? Yeah, and the hotter it gets, the worse the world's problems will be. So no surprise, countries like Japan are doing anything they can to cool things down. Two years to go until the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. But as the city continues its countdown to the event, there is rising concern that it'll be too hot to host the biggest sporting event on the planet. They are doing a few things. They are going to paint the streets white to make the sun bounce back and not heat up the ground. You see, now there's a solution. Painting the streets white. All right, although that might cause more problems because now the road will cause so much glare 
that you can't see when you drive, so they'll have to fix the glare by covering the road with giant sunglasses, right? <laughs> yeah, but then now the road has glass all over it, so Japan will have to invent hover cars so that they don't break the glass. But then the hover cars will just crash into birds, and all that squawking is gonna wake up Godzilla, and then he'll come onto land, <laughs> and he'll see that the Olympics are in Tokyo, and he'll be like, I want to compete! And then Japan will be like, oh no, this is for humans only, and Godzilla will be like, oh, you're discriminating against me? And then Japan will have a nasty lawsuit on its hands, and it'll be really horrible. I might have smoked some weed before I started this story. <laughs> the point is, though, there's a solution. And look, at least Japan is trying to fix the problem. I think we should be trying too, okay? So before the weed wears off, here are some ideas. <laughs> number one, stick with me here, number one. The color white reflects sunlight away from the earth, right? So from now on, when the sun is at its hottest, all the white people, you go outside, <laughs> all right? You go outside, and then you bend the sunlight back to the sun. And then all black people will be inside. We'll just chill inside, and then you can tell us how it went. All right, yeah. Uh, here's another idea, here's another idea. Sea levels are rising, we gotta stop that. So one day a year, everyone on Earth, we go to the beach and we just drink a giant cup of seawater, right? And don't tell me it's gross. If people can drink kombucha, you can drink some seawater. All of us, we make an effort. Oh, and most importantly, we have to keep the icebergs from melting. My solution, we give every iceberg a desk job, right? Because American offices always have the air conditioning on way too high. <laughs> Nothing can melt in there. Even the iceberg, iceberg would be like, oh, does anyone have a jacket I can borrow, please? I'm, I'm freezing my nuts off in here. Yeah, these are some solutions. Oh, here's another thing we could do. We could also try and regulate global carbon emissions and accept some economic pain in the short term to protect the future of our planet in the long term. No, you know what, that's crazy. Just grab a cup and I'll see you guys at the beach. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is the 28-year-old progressive activist who defeated a 10-term congressman in the Democratic primary for New York's 14th congressional district. Please welcome House Democratic nominee, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Wow. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Congratulations Thank you. on being the nominee, and more importantly, congratulations on being both the dream of half the country and a nightmare <laughs> of another half. I'll take it, I'll you, take you, it. You, you seem like you have been taking it. Um, the term democratic socialist mm -hmm. has never felt like it, it has more weight to it than mm -hmm. now. We mm -hmm. hear your name on the news every single day. Mm -hmm. When you use that term, what do you want people to understand by it? Well, I think what I want people to understand is that we live in a society that is capable. We are capable of ensuring that we have basic frameworks where people can be covered by health insurance, can send their kids to college, where we can pursue a, a very bold action on climate change and save our future, and that it is part of a moral and ethical economy, and that we can legislate from that value and where it is possible, I believe we are morally ob obliged to pursue it. Right. Now, when you, when you speak about that, it seems like a logical idea for a politician mm -hmm. to have in America. Mm -hmm. The way Which you are lacking. framed... <laughs> the way you are framed is oftentimes the crazy socialist who yeah. wants to turn America into Venezuela yeah, and into right. Cuba. Right. Now, what I find interesting is, uh, you know, when I think of ideas of socialism, I, I 
go, okay, there's maybe Venezuela mm-hmm. and there's Cuba, and then I go, but then there's also Norway and Denmark. Right. Do you think there's a, there's a branding disconnect uh, connect in America between some of these policy ideas between generations, maybe? Well, between generations, I absolutely think so. I think us as millennials, we grew up in a time, we, grew, we came of age in a time of 9-11 happened in middle school. Right. Uh, the financial crisis happened in college. We have never really known or grown up in a time of true economic prosperity in right. the United States. We came of age in a time of hyper-concentration of wealth with the very tippy-top of people um, in, in the country and the world. Right. And so for us to have access, we also grew up seeing our peers in other countries, like in the UK and Canada with single-payer healthcare systems. We grew up with peers uh, being able to go to college without you know, graduating with a mortgage's worth of debt. Mm-hmm. And we, we know that economically there's a better way because it has already been done. Right. When, 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 when you get spoken about, and this has been interesting, it's been a conversation that I haven't just heard from Republicans, which you would expect. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed some uh, establishment Democrats who have come out and said, oh, I've, I've seen the young lady Ocasio-Cortez uh, uh, say the things she says, but it's a little unrealistic. Mm-hmm. You know, she has to be a bit more realistic to move things forward. Mm-hmm. Do you think that when you move into Congress, if you were to win that seat, would you be in a position where you would have to augment your views? Or do you think that you would come to an impasse with other mm-hmm. Democrats? Well, I think I often say in terms of my style, I'm very idealistic and optimistic about my values and my goals and where I think we should head. But I'm very pragmatic in how we head there. Um, And so I think that I'm willing to to work with folks in the direction that I think we need to head. Uh And so I'm not a take no prisoners kind of person as much as Fox News and all of these folks want me to want to portray me as. Um, But I think it's it's about getting to where we need to be, you know, and uh, and that may mean some spirited conversation within the party, but that doesn't mean we can't. I've, I really do believe that we have a much longer path to travel together than one that than before we travel apart. When, when you look at ideas you have, like uh, supporting a, mid- a minimum wage, mm-hmm. you are very pro the idea of people earning enough to make a living. Yeah, right? shocking. I, crazy ideas. <laughs> But, but then there are those who say, look, I, I agree with you, mm-hmm. but how do you pay for this? How do you make it mm-hmm. economically feasible? There, there are some who argue and say, I hear what you're saying, Ms. Cortez, and I'm with you, but a $15 minimum wage may stifle economic mm-hmm. growth. Well, first we see, for example, studies in the city of Seattle that have implemented $15 minimum wage uh, show that that is not the case. Uh, secondly, one of the big, biggest problems that we have is... 200 million Americans make less than $20,000 a year. That's 40% of this country. And how can we have an economy that grows? How can we build wealth as an economy if a large plurality of Americans are too poor to participate in it? Raising the, living, uh, the minimum wage to a living wage will expand our economy. It will create wealth in our economy, and it will increase economic activity in this country. Uh, so for those that say it's unrealistic, this, that, and the other, it comes back to money and politics. Who's financing your campaign? Right. And are the folks financing your campaign, are the private equity groups financing your campaign? It's not a coincidence that they profit off of low wages. Do you, do you worry that when you get into the halls of Congress that you may become uh, infected by that money? And the reason I ask this is because I've seen many politicians 
who start out with beautiful ideals. Mm -hmm. And once they get into the machine, they'll tell you that from the inside it's yeah. so different. You, you have to get money from big corporations and you have to start working with business. Mm -hmm. Do you worry that maybe your ideals will be met, met with reality once you get to, uh, to the capital? Well, I, um, I think that what makes our campaign and my candidacy a little different is that I have taken a public pledge not to accept any corporate PAC money whatsoever. to see a movement in Congress. I think there's about eight, uh, eight members of Congress, I believe they're all Democrats, that have uh, accepted that pledge. But I actually think I may be one of the only ones that actually got elected for the first time on that. Many, many folks got elected with some corporate money right. and then they swore it off after. But I think I'm one of the first to get elected right out of the gate without any corporate PAC money, which gives me, I believe, a very large degree of independence. Um, I am a little, uh, you know, I, I'm a little afraid because I know of the I know that the culture of Congress is one that I think the majority of Americans are just exasperated with. Right, right, right. And um, and to a certain extent, you have to be kind of an emissary in that there are ways that you get things done. And there's the implication that you need to get committee assignments by purchasing them through fundraising mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all of that. And I think it's one of those things where. Um, you know, I think, first of all, I got elected on not taking corporate PAC money, and I have absolutely no intention of changing that whatsoever. Right. And so it's really just about learning to navigate that space with that foundation. You, you've seen some of the older uh, politicians and more establishment politicians within the Democratic Party mm -hmm. saying, I, I like what uh, Alexandria Cortez is all about, but mm -hmm. she's scaring away Midwestern voters. Mm -hmm. She needs to temper her message because that's going to lose her the support of Midwestern voters, which is weird because you're, you're not, yeah. first of all, representing no. them. No. <laughs> but, but, but also, how do you respond to that idea that you are in fact creating an unappealing view of what the Democratic Party is? Uh, so Earlier this week or, or last week, a few days ago, everything's a blur. I don't even, what is time? Um, <laughs> but uh, I was in Kansas and I intentionally went uh, with Senator Sanders actually in an extremely deep red district, the district that the Koch brothers live in. It was a Republican plus 20 district. And a non-corporate candidate, progressive candidate campaigned in that district and turned it to R plus six. Wow. He's, he shaved 14 points off of the Republican advantage in that district. This was a district that everybody gave up on. They said, it's, this is too bad, like right. too far gone. Uh, he went in there anyway, and he cut 14 points off, the, off of the Republican lead. And we went in there, and on 1 p.m. on a Friday in the middle of the workday, we turned out four to 5,000 people in the middle of Wichita for a rally. And I think what we need to remember is that it was the Midwest that was the source of the progressive movement originally in the United States of America. It was workers in Indiana, in Michigan, in Kansas that bought into the New Deal, that organized, that unionized their labor, mm -hmm. that got a 40-hour work week and a two-day weekend. That came from the Midwest. Right. And I believe that it will come from the Midwest again. When... Okay. When you look at the power of labels, I mean, mm -hmm. in politics, you understand how, how powerful a label can be, you know, that's attached to your name or an idea. Do you ever consider taking a socialist out of your label? And I, I, I asked this as, as an argument that I saw where there was an interesting idea where someone said, um, millennials in this generation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. haven't been 
indoctrinated in the same way against socialism right. as the older generation has. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I thought, I was like, I wonder if Alexandria Cortez would say, no, I, I don't mind not being called a socialist, but these are still my platform ideas. Or do you feel like you should be able to run on the platform and say you mm. are who you are? Wh which one would you prefer to go with? Well, I think my strength is that I am honest and I am authentic. And I think that even Republicans like write letters to our campaign saying thank you. And one of the reasons they do that, A, is because getting money out of politics is a bipartisan and postpartisan issue. Right. Everybody recognizes that it's a problem. But then B, I think people appreciate that I am honest and that I'm not trying to not be who I am in order to get you to like me. Right. You know, I'm here. This is what it's about, Medicare for all, tuition-free public college, a Green New Deal. That is what I campaigned as. And that is that I think it's also important to say that um, this socialist label is something that I think the media cares more about. Mm -hmm. um, because I don't knock on a person's door and is like, hey, let me tell you about socialism. Like that's Yeah, that, that wouldn't that That's wouldn't not work. how I campaign. Yeah, that's like um, you Jehovah's Witnesses. That's right, like yeah, exactly. That, that exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and for, I also think that I don't knock on a person's door and say, hey, let me tell you about being a Democrat. No, I don't say that. I speak to people's needs. And, um, you know, if Fox News and if, if media want to continue using this word, they're right. going to use the word. I think by me saying, oh, no, I'm not, this, that, and the other, it just becomes a distraction. We're here to talk about wages. We're here to talk about uh, education. We're here to talk about saving our planet. We're here to talk about a carbon tax. We're here, about, we're here to talk about people paying their fair share. And we're here to talk about saving the country, right. <laughs> frankly. Before I let you go, before I let you go, then that, that, that is one of the key things that I, I want to speak to you about then is those ideas, I think most people would agree on, especially if they don't know the label that they're attached to, right. you know? But then the pragmatic side of it comes in, as you said. Mm -hmm. How do you pay for these? You know, you always see people coming in with economic arguments. Mm -hmm. And they say, look, these numbers don't really add up. You know, in right. order to get health care for everybody, this is what it would cost. Mm -hmm. That's going to be troubling. Even if you reverse the Republican tax deal, that's only going to make up 5% of what mm -hmm. we need to pay for Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, how do you pay for education for all? How do you pay yeah. for all of these, these ideas? So uh, this, is an, this is an excellent, excellent question. And in fact, there's a lot of back of the envelope stuff based on our values. So for example, I sat down um, with a Nobel Prize economist last week. I can't believe I can say that. It's really weird. But, um, but one of the things that we saw is if people pay their fair share, if corporations and the ultra wealthy, for example, as Warren Buffett likes to say, if he paid as much as his secretary paid, 15%, if he paid a 15% tax rate, if uh, corporations paid, uh, if, we, if we reversed the, the tax bill, but went, raised our, our corporate tax rate to 28%, which is not even as high as it was before. Right. Um, if, we, if we do those two things and also close some of those loopholes, that's $2 trillion right there. That's $2 trillion in 10 years. And it's wide, one of the wide estimates is that it's going to take 3 to $4 trillion to transition us to 100% renewable energy economy. So we got $2 trillion from folks paying their fair share, which they were not paying before the Trump tax bill. Right. They weren't, no, like, they weren't paying that before the Trump tax bill. If we get people to, to pay their fair share, that's $2 trillion in 10 years. Now, if we implement a carbon tax, 
on top of that so that we can transition and, and financially incentivize people away from fossil fuels. If we implement a carbon tax, that's an additional amount of, um, of, of a large amount of revenue that we can have. And then the last key, which is extremely, extremely important, is reprioritization. Just last year, we gave the military a $700 billion uh, uh, budget increase, which they didn't even ask for. They're like, we don't want another fighter jet. Like, they're <laughs> like, don't give us another nuclear bomb. You know? right. they, they didn't even ask for it, and we gave it to them. And so a lot of what we need to do is reprioritize what we want to accomplish as a nation. And really what this is about is saying healthcare is important for us, enough for us to put first. Education is important enough for us to put first. And that is a decision that requires political and moral courage from both parts of the aisle, period. Thank you so much for being on the show. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.